last week, this segment turned into me talking for a long time because we had no phones, unfortunately, but uh, that hopefully seems to have been rectified, and I am now joined by my usual Monday guest here, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, thanks so much for coming on here. Thank you for having me. All right, so uh, hopefully the phones, uh, you know, have no issues and we can get through this whole segment. I have my fingers crossed, so we'll see. Mine <laughs> too. All right, so let's start with uh, Bill C-5 here and sort of what this means for, for judges. So I explained it a little bit here before the break, but, uh, you know, former interim conservative leader Rona Ambrose uh, says that she expects all party support to finally pass legislation that would require judges to undergo sensitivity training before they can preside over sexual assault cases. So uh, just what is your initial thoughts here on this move? I can only imagine that equipping judges with more tools to make informed decisions should be seen as a good thing. On its face, absolutely. I think if, you, if you're equipping judges with the tools to make informed decisions, bearing in mind where the burden and standard of proof are in a criminal trial, then that's a great thing. But this isn't training that would require judges to understand the law and the prohibition on certain myths about sexual assault being argued in court and how not to apply those myths in a criminal trial. This is training that is being done um, by victims' advocacy groups and survivors of sexual assault without any input whatsoever from any defense perspectives or without any training required of judges um, in dealing with these cases while remembering that there is a burden of proof on the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt that's on the prosecution in every single sexual assault case. Okay, so with that in mind, I guess, how, how would you like to see uh, this training uh, approached? I mean, you, you think there should be some more involvement from, uh, from lawyers in, the, in this training process? I think that there should be uh, perspectives presented from uh, from both sides. So it's important, of course, for judges to hear the perspectives of, of survivors and, and victims advocacy groups and to understand why we have sexual assault myths in our society and why those myths are wrong. But it's also important that that doesn't turn into a process of indoctrination where judges start to approach sexual assault cases from the perspective of a presumption of guilt, which is, you know, in a criminal context, what the, I believe, survivors movement tends to leave us in a position of um, and that uh, you know it's, it's a difficult line to walk because in society we need to believe and appreciate what survivors of sexual assault are saying but at the on the other hand we have to make sure that that doesn't trickle into our criminal justice system which requires the conviction only when that high standard of beyond a reasonable doubt has been met uh, what, one thing that does come along with this bill is um, also looking at uh, judges having to um, put their decisions basically uh, or their reasons on the record when they rule on sexual assault cases. I mean, that's got to at least be viewed as a real positive here moving forward that, uh, you know, there would be uh, more of a historical record of how these cases are being handled. Well, it's actually, it sounds like a positive, but that's already the law. Right. Judges have right. to provide reasons for why they are acquitting or convicting a person. They can't just say, you know, I, I, I believe that this event occurred, therefore I find you guilty. They have to give a reasoned analysis engaging with the evidence that explains the pathway to their conclusion. So all this is doing is codifying an obligation that already exists on judges. And, and this, um, I mean, a similar bill was passed in the House in 2017, from what I understand, and then and then failed to make it through the Senate. I guess, you know, do you think that um, it was sort of maybe a number of these types of concerns that you're bringing forward as to why this didn't go through uh, three years ago and then potentially could have the same issues this time around? It was exactly these types of concerns that had the Senate essentially let the bill die on, on the Senate floor. It was concerns that there wasn't enough being done to preserve the presumption of innocence in a criminal trial, which is the golden thread of our, of our justice system.
So with that being said, I mean, uh, it sounds to me like you do feel like there is some need to maybe revamp the way, um, you know, judges are, are looking at these cases or at least being taught to, to go about looking at these cases, but just maybe it's not being approached in the right way at this time. Exactly. Training is, uh, is appropriate and important for judges. Judges already receive training on numerous issues, but the way that it's being done and, and being proposed under this bill, I think, falls far short of what we expect in the type of objective training that judges should be receiving and, and tends to make it more subjective. Okay. Um, any, anything else you want to add on that topic before we move on here, Kyla? I think that sums up most of my thoughts. All right, perfect. Um, one other thing that I did want to talk about here today was uh, the Law Society of British Columbia uh, was no longer going to be asking applicants about their medical fitness as it relates to past substance use and existing medical conditions. So it was recommended the removal of the medical fitness questions in the Law Society admission program application. Uh, I guess just, again, what are your initial thoughts here uh, with this being removed? I mean, it sounds like something that, um, you know, should help people who maybe have a bit of a, a checkered past but don't want that past to define their future. Oh, absolutely. And this is, you know, something that has been a long time needed from the law society. We have a much better understanding of mental health as a society than the law society generally has had um, over the last 50 years. And asking questions of people about whether they have mental health conditions and prying into those, you know, very personal spaces in people's lives when there is no evidence that those will impact somebody's ability to practice law is absolutely inappropriate. And we have a process already designed to identify people who aren't capable of being lawyers. That's why we have articling. Um, you know, people who want to be lawyers have to work under the direct supervision of another lawyer um, for a minimum of a year before they can be called and admitted to the bar. And that, that lawyer has to sign off on their fitness to practice law, which includes looking at, at, at issues like their mental health. And if they identify concerns during the articling process, that lawyer has a legal obligation to bring those to the law society and to not recommend that, that person become a lawyer. So if somebody has a mental health condition that's going to prevent them from adequately practicing law, that's going to be identified in that one-year one year period. Asking somebody about their history and something that they've gone through that they may have overcome completely only exposes them to having to provide information that is totally invasive and personal and, uh, and isn't necessary for the purpose that is being asked. And I, I'm going to assume that this probably has had a, an impact on a number of individuals throughout the past when it comes to looking for employment um, and these sort of questions being available to an employer to review and look at uh, probably did prevent a lot of people from potentially getting uh, opportunities and, and this um, you know, will hopefully change that or at least uh, change some of those, uh, those considerations that people have when viewing applications. It hopefully will. I mean, we've seen stories. There's a, an individual right now who's got a case before the BC Human Rights Tribunal because the Law Society has essentially been denying him his application for enrollment because of his struggles with alcoholism. We know that there are substance abuse issues in the profession. Many lawyers struggle with alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling addictions, all sorts of problems. Um, and they're still capable of practicing law. They haven't been disbarred simply because they have those problems. And yet this individual is being prevented because 
because he disclosed to the law society that he has this issue. And I think that that's unfair. I've seen it in, in, in my own practice. I've seen people that are wanting to become lawyers having their applications delayed because they have to go chase down re- letters from their psychiatrists, from their uh, from their doctors, explaining the medications they take and the steps that they're taking to deal with their mental health. When having you know known these people for a long period of time, I, I can clearly indicate that they don't have any mental health issues that would affect their ability to deal with client issues. Um, just speaking from that personal experience then and, and those that you have uh, you know spoken to or who are dealing with these kinds of issues and problems, um, you know, ha- has having to deal with this process and having to go and track down those letters from psychiatrists and things along those lines, I mean, that, that can't have a positive impact on your mental health where you're trying to move forward and trying to get employment and trying to get a job and trying to better your life and, and really this, um, this issue that you're trying to probably get over is now a hindrance and, and I'm sure, you know, being told to go back and collect all this information to uh, prove that you are worthy of, of, you know, having a job or whatever the case may be, um, that, can't, that can't be a good thing for your mental health. It can't be. And, you know, I've watched people struggle with this this hanging question of whether they're after this huge financial investment, an emotional investment of going through law school and graduating law school, whether they'll actually be able to become lawyers and participate in the articling process. That's, that takes more of a toll on your mental health, having to disclose to an employer a very personal issue. And, you know, remember, too, that people struggle with mental health issues, sometimes as a result of horrible, tragic things that have happened to them, including, including very personal things like sexual assault and having to explain that to an employer and to go through that with your employer and have them sign off on on being willing to take that you know perceived risk as an employer when when hiring you no other profession no other job requires you to disclose to your to your prospective employer that you have a mental health condition it's it's absolutely inappropriate and it was long since past the time that the law society needed to remove that question yeah, yeah, it definitely feels like the, the right move here uh, in 2020. Uh, we have a couple minutes left here, Kyla, so I did want to touch a little bit on uh, ICBC and the announcement that was made last week as they make this move to sort of no-fault insurance, although they're still a little bit reluctant to call it that for whatever reason, but that's essentially what was being proposed here uh, by the NDP government. Uh, I spoke with your colleague Paul Doroshenko on this on Friday as well and just sort of the concerns that come with, with no-fault insurance and just, uh, you know, if anything significant were to happen to individuals, um, it sort of limits you in, in how you you can go about uh, collecting some compensation. So I just wanted to get, uh, you know, your opinion on uh, the changes that were announced by ICBC or the proposed changes that were announced uh, by the NDP for ICBC last week, um, and just uh, you know how, how you feel about those changes here um, here as we as we look to see if they do in, in fact pass. You know, I do have concerns about them. Uh, one, I think that this has been sold to the public as, as the solution to the problem of, of greedy lawyers taking people's money, um, when that's not the case. Legal fees for accident claims are capped by law society rules. Lawyers are only allowed to take up to a certain percentage of the ultimate settlement. Um, the criticism that's been led publicly about disbursements, you and I have talked about before, um, those don't come out of uh, the uh, the person's pocket um, in the amount that they're getting settled they're on top of the settlement amounts and i don't see the, these changes as being necessary i think that what, what happened here was david eby tried one thing he tried capping expert reports that was unsuccessful and so he went to the most extreme option um, down the spectrum of other options available to deal with these issues um, to to try and in in my view to some extent punish uh, the lawyers who've been speaking out about these changes and speaking up for the rights of their clients 
Um, and I think this is ultimately going to have a negative impact on how these cases are dealt with in our justice system because we're going to see less litigation of, uh, of these types of claims. Um, and it gives all of the power to ICBC to determine really how much care a person is going to get for an injury without any ability to have a lawyer represent them in that process. Right on, Kyla. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you so much for speaking to me, and uh, I'm glad everything uh, was able to work in terms of our phone system here. We didn't drop you, so that was good, and, and we'll hopefully have uh, just as smooth a, a chat here next week. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> right on. That was Acumen Laws. Kyla Lee.